Hello, and welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it comes from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week, we're looking at Jean Leclerc. Jean Leclerc was born in 1657 in Geneva, Switzerland. His father, Stephen Leclerc, was professor of Greek, and most of his family had some note in literature and scholarship, and specifically biblical scholarship, Old and New Testament studies. The family originally belonged to the neighborhood of Beauvoir in France, but it relocated to Geneva by the time that Leclerc was born. Jean Leclerc studied philosophy under the Cartesian instructor J.R. Chouet and attended the theological lectures of Mestrazet, Turretin, and Tranchin. And in 1678 to 1679, he spent some time at Grenoble as a tutor in a private family and then returned to Geneva Uh, passing his examinations and receiving ordination there. Soon afterwards, he went to Semur, where in 1679, he published Liberi de Santo Amore Epistolae Theologicae under a nom de plume, though it is usually attributed to him. This work deals with the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union of the two natures in Jesus, original sin, and a whole bunch of other theological topics, but in a way that is pretty far from conventional orthodoxy now and especially of that period. In 1682, he went to London, and he remained there six months preaching on alternate Sundays in the Walloon Church and in the Savoy Chapel. He passed on to Amsterdam and was introduced to John Locke and to Philip Limborch, Uh, who was a professor at the Remonstrant College. He became close friends with Limborg, and this drew Leclerc into the Remonstrant theology, although he did know about this through the writings of his granduncle, Stephen Kerkelius, and those of Simon Episcopius. Just a heads up, if you aren't familiar with the Remonstrant theology, It was a brand of Protestant theology that was trying to react against Catholic theology, but also using the liberal modernist ideas of the time. So I'll get into this a little more in the second half of the episode, but just wanted to let you know that the Remonstrants were essentially a Reformation going against the Catholic Counter-Reformation, keeping that all straight. Anyways. Leclerc tried to move to Geneva, made at the request of some relatives there, but then decided that the theological atmosphere was uncongenial, and in 1684, he finally settled in Amsterdam. Remember, Geneva is pretty conservative. That was the place years earlier where John Calvin was, 
and many of the very, very hard-lined Protestant churches were there. Anyways, he settled in Amsterdam, and he started as a preacher until some ecclesiastical strife shut him out. He then became professor of philosophy, belles lettres, and Hebrew in the Remonstrant Seminary. This appointment, which he owed to Limborch, he held from 1684, and in 1712, on the death of his friend, he then occupied the chair of church history, in addition to his philosophy and Hebrew positions. So, because of the writing that we are going to discuss, he was suspected of being a Sassinian, that is to say, unorthodox at best and heretical at worst. His suspected Sassinianism was the cause, it is said, of his exclusion from the chair of dogmatic theology. That would be the chair at the school. When you have a tenured, high-ranking position, it would be a chair. So apart from his writing, Leclerc married a daughter of Gregorio Letti in 1691 in Amsterdam. And from 1728 onward, he was subject to repeated strokes of paralysis, and he eventually died in January of 1736. So before we get into Leclerc's Old Testament ideas, let's take a quick break. text that we will be talking about is Leclerc's Sentiments de Quelques Theologiens de Holland sur Histoire Critique du Vieux Testament composé par le Richard Simon. Pardon my French, I know it was terrible. So for those of us who are not speaking French, which clearly I was not, but trying to, the title translates to Sentiments of Some Theologians of Holland on the Critical History of the Old Testament, composed by Friar Richard Simon. So this was written in 1685. If I had planned better, I would have put this episode right after the one on Richard Simon, but sometimes mistakes happen and these are obviously not next to each other. So Leclerc and Simon had a three-year exchange based upon a criticism taken poorly. And this is the climax of that argument. But let me first give you a background to this discussion before we get into the actual arguments. So Richard Simon was trying to put together his polyglot Bible. That is to say, a Bible with many translations and all the languages side by side. 
1684, Simon publicly requested advice on his project by publishing a short treatise entitled Novorum Bibliorum Polyglottorum. I think that's pretty clear. New Polyglot Bible. <laughs> Keep in mind that Simon had already made his name with his book Questioning Mosaic Authorship, and Leclerc was fresh out of school. Also, by making his name, I mean Simon got in some trouble and had his book burned and started publishing under pseudonyms. But anyhow, senior researcher puts out a call for advice and insight, and Leclerc is ready to respond. So the publisher, his name was Lears, arranged for the delivery of Leclerc's 12-page response to Simon's letter, which he wrote in Latin, praising Simon for his scholarship and then offering several suggestions for improving upon Walton's Polyglot Bible, Walton's Polyglot Bible being the best available at the time. So Simon did not seem to appreciate the input and criticized Leclerc's Latin abilities and ridiculed his scholarly abilities. After receiving this harsh response, Leclerc decided to prove his scholarly abilities and wrote the book that we'll be talking about here. He made a point-by-point -point refutation of Simon's work on historical criticism, and so that is to say, one year after historical criticism came out in 1685, and the harsh response from Simon came out in 1684. He was ready. Anyways, Simon then responded with a work called Réponse in 1686, which is easily known, Response in English, to which Leclerc wrote a Défense des Sentiments, which is a defense of the thoughts or defense of the sentiments, in the same year, which was followed by a new Réponse from Simon in 1687. So, don't let your academic work get too personal. Uh, the view of scholars as unbiased and cold is clearly a myth. So, enough historical background. Just thought it was an interesting prelude to what we'll be talking about. I do want to get into the ideas that Leclerc is actually putting forth. You can go back to the Richard Simon episode for a lengthier discussion of his views but I'll try to give a brief overview of them here. So Simon's view was that prophets were public scribes authorized by Moses to write the Pentateuch. That's his term, public scribes. This tradition of public scribes continued throughout history, and so even though Moses might not have written the books as we have them, the prophets, or scribes, were commissioned and inspired to write them. This holds true for the rest of the Old Testament, and so the long development history of the books was also inspired and accounts for some of the textual issues, anachronisms, and repetitions in the stories. If you remember, prophets and scribes are really the same thing for Simon. They were called prophets early, they were later called scribes, but it's the same tradition of editing and canonizing, compiling all of these documents. So, how did Leclerc respond? Well, first, it is important to note that he was a huge fan of Grotius. 
By huge fan, I mean he published multiple editions of Grotius's work. So he took from Grotius the concept of the Bible as a historical rather than sacred document. So he looked for historical reliability rather than arguing for the infallibility of the text. Second, Leclerc was influenced by Spinoza, who really got the ball rolling on denying Mosaic authorship and denying miracles. Leclerc didn't really like Spinoza's thought, and especially of his denial of miracles, but he did borrow Spinoza's work on Mosaic authorship, to the point that chapter 6 of Leclerc's work is almost verbatim from Spinoza's book on Mosaic authorship. They clearly did not have copyright infringement laws in the way that we have them now. The third influence that he had, he was influenced by both those authors and many other works that we've talked about so far in thinking that reason was equal with scripture. So if you remember, Spinoza and Grotius talked about this, but so did almost everyone else. So biblical precepts that did not line up with the dictates of reason, however you define dictates of reason, should be rejected. This has been such a common theme that I don't really want to dive too deeply into it at this point, but just know he is following in that tradition. Fourth, and finally, Leclerc was a Protestant remonstrant, and Simon was a Catholic counter-reformer. This final point frames their argument in a way that might be somewhat foreign to many of us. Simon is trying to maintain the inspiration of the Bible, but also that the church is needed to understand it and develop theology from it. Leclerc, however, wants to find the fundamental principles of the faith in the Bible and then use those to define the true church. So Simon sees the church as the arbiter of correct understanding, but Leclerc sees biblical principles as the arbiter of the true church. If you know anything about Protestant versus Catholic theology, you'll know that this is not wildly different than it is today. A Catholic theologian would be very much a fan of using church tradition on equal footing with the Bible. A Protestant theologian, even extremely conservative ones, would say that it is scripture alone, and the church must subscribe to that in order to be the true church. Otherwise, you're heretical or not actually the church. One thing that Leclerc is very set on, very set on, is that these fundamental principles that he's deriving from the text should be unifying for the church, not dividing. This is a very common thing for remonstrants and Protestants in general, is to find these fundamental principles of the faith. But his big emphasis is that they should be unifying, not dividing. For example, all churches agree that Jesus died on a cross. This is explicitly stated in the Bible, and so must be a fundamental principle. This should unify the churches because it is a basic belief. However, other beliefs 
are not found explicitly stated in the Bible and should, so should be left as unknowns. These are what normally divide the church and are really just speculation and not fundamental because they're just speculative. One of these, for Leclerc, is the Trinity. It's not explicitly stated, so all conversations around it are just questions into the void. Belief in God is clearly stated in the Bible, but the Trinity is not. So Leclerc only requires that true Christians believe in God. You'll notice his fundamental principles do not necessarily align with what more conservative scholars of today or even his day would agree with. But when you are emphasizing unity and not division, your principles will be far less and far broader. So anyways, why is this important for our conversation? Well, Leclerc is trying to assert the truth of the biblical principles without having to go to the church. This was a common Protestant method at that time, but he took it further than most. So his method was to divide between the words of Scripture and the things of Scripture. Those are his words. Words of Scripture, things of Scripture. So the things of Scripture are fundamental doctrines, while the words are secondary items. So Leclerc is claiming that the doctrines of Scripture, the things, are inspired by God, but the words of the Bible are not. Leclerc denied the divine inspiration of all sections of the Bible, except those passages where God was directly speaking. The biblical authors were, therefore, mere fallible witnesses to divine revelation. To support this position, he interpreted 2 Timothy 3.16, the most important passage by Paul on biblical inspiration, to read, all scripture that is inspired by God is profitable. The common way that we would interpret that is all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Notice he inserted a little word here. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable versus all scripture that is inspired by God is profitable. So he's narrowing it down to say only those texts which are inspired are profitable, which is to say not all those texts are inspired. This is important because what he goes on to do is fundamentally undermine the Bible and especially the Old Testament, but he is doing so to protect the Christian faith. <coughs> he is trying to separate the text from the theology and claim that even with a flawed book, the fundamentals of the faith presented in it are true. He believed that the most uneducated reader could understand the fundamental truths of the faith without theologians or the church having to explain them. The basics of Christianity are that clear and obvious to any reader, and those are the things that God inspired to be in the text. Not the words, not these weird details pulled out of obscure texts. The clear and obvious things are the fundamental principles we all must believe in. 
So one of Leclerc's principles for identifying fundamental truths was that they are only found in the clear teaching of the New Testament and primarily Jesus. This makes sense because Leclerc doubts many of the historical and chronological parts of the Bible. He wants unadulterated universal principles, not history or earthly things. He also has a pretty negative view of the patriarchal sections, that is to say, the book of Genesis. Leclerc claims that these sections were quite errant, not because God is fallible, but the ignorance of the Hebrew people. So before Moses gave the law, the Hebrew people were prone to idolatry and other carnal sins. As Leclerc claimed, quote, God who is not only sovereignly wise, but also infinitely charitable, was obliged to accommodate himself to the crude level of understanding of this carnal people in order to bring them to an obedience worthy of himself, that is to say, of free obedience. He therefore prescribed for Israel a cult proportionate to their weakness and similar to that which they had seen in Egypt, a worship full of ceremonies and physical figures. End quote. In this way, even the Mosaic law was an accommodation because the people could not worship in spirit and truth like the New Testament church could. So none of the Bible is meant to be perfect, but it is an imperfect book made by God to teach imperfect people who are more imperfect the farther back you go in time. So this content limitation also extends to the Hebrew language. Leclerc was not just against the Latin biblical text because he was a Protestant, and that was the Catholic version. He also hated the Latin Vulgate because it changed the meaning of the original Hebrew. Leclerc believed that the Hebrew text was obscure because of Hebrew idioms, but many of the idioms might have been clear to the original speaking audience, even though now they are unclear, and some of them might have always been obscure idioms, even to the original Hebrew audience. However, the Latin Vulgate renders the obscure text as falsely clear or inserted phrases that supported the Catholic Church doctrine where it wasn't in the original. This is contrary to Simon, who supported the Latin Vulgate because it is the official version by the Catholic Church and the culmination of the transmission of the Bible. Leclerc doesn't believe that the Hebrew Old Testament is necessarily clearer, but that it is more original, even in its obscure and flawed parts. All of this is an interesting view, but how does this combat Richard Simon's view of scribal schools called prophets that wrote, compiled, and edited the text throughout history? If you remember from the Simon episode, he claims that Moses actually wrote some or all of the laws, but not the rest of the history in the Pentateuch. These parts were written by scribes either under his supervision or who were inspired to collect these words after his death and then re-edited 
many times over. Well, here is a summary of Simon's assumptions by Leclerc, who asserts there is no evidence for these scribal schools. Quote, he, Simon, supposes that, one, God was always the head of the Republic of Israel. Two, that he gave to the Republic prophets to act as analysts. That'd be someone who compiles annals, not someone who analyzes. Annals. Analysts. Three, that there was always in the Republic, even under Artaxerxes, a continual series of prophet scribes. Four, that these prophets were not the kind that predicted the future. Five, that this did not prevent Samuel, Nathan, and Isaiah, and many others from predicting the future. Six, that they were not called maskirim, that is, keepers of the records, and that the job of the maskirim, the keepers of the records, was more important than that of the scribes, and the maskirim could be scribes. Seven, that between the officers of the state, the writing was not ordinarily mentioned, that there were many scribes or writers, the anther wrote the spoken word in the scriptures, being an analyst of the state, and the maskirs were the secretaries of the king. Eight, that under the most corrupt kings, there were always inspired people to write the annals. 9. That these prophets were also public orators, according to the needs of the state. 10. That not only did they write the history of their times, but also they abridged the ancient acts of which they published what they found relevant. 11. That there were many changes, according to the times, and that these abridgments were retouched in different times by different people. Twelve that from what there is of other public analysts of other eastern states, one can conclude that they also existed in the Republic of Israel. Thirteen, that Josephus, who remarked that the thesis was true, could be instructive in these matters in what should be believed when he said that these scribes existed from Moses to Artaxerxes, end quote. So because the public scribe's viewpoint entails a ton of assumptions and have very little historical precedent, Leclerc came up with his own viewpoint. If you listen to that list again, you'll notice that all of these things are necessary to make the claim of scribes throughout history, editing, re-editing, making changes, compiling these books. All of these things must be assumed, but none of them are proved. So if you can't show this process in action, but you need all of these components for your thesis to be correct, you are on very thin ice. Anyways, Leclerc's theory was that the real author, quote, might have been an honest Israelite who collected all the writings of Moses and added to them some other facts taken out of some ancient and credible books for the use of the Samaritans about the time of the captivity, end quote. This Israelite was supposedly a priest 
who desired to provide the Samaritans with a text that would remind them of their Hebrew heritage. Now notice that this view is way more radical than that of Simon, because Leclerc left no room for Moses to play any role in the authorship of the Pentateuch. This wasn't even started with Moses. This was one person writing way after, during the time of the exile. So let me just recap here. Leclerc disagreed strongly with Richard Simon. That wasn't obvious. He believed that the Hebrew text was better than the Latin Vulgate, even though it had historical and literary inconsistencies, as well as obscure passages that are impossible for modern readers to discern. He also disagreed with Simon that there were a line of public scribes stretching from the time of Moses that wrote and edited the Old Testament mostly because there is no proof of that happening. Clearly, someone's transcribing the text over time, but there is no evidence that it was the prophets, and there's no evidence that they were changing, editing, or compiling for most of the texts, or even when those changes, edits, and compilations took place. So, Leclerc believed that there was a priest who compiled the Pentateuch around the time of the exile, so Moses had no role in writing it. However, Leclerc was not concerned with the historical issues, but with the fundamental principles of the faith. So, even with all of these textual issues, he believed that he was preserving the faith from the twisting and excessive dogma of the Catholic Church and theologians. He believed that faith was consistent with reason and that the only things necessary for a Christian are the things plainly stated in the Bible that anyone could understand regardless of theological training. So it is okay to undermine the biblical text and to question the historical accuracy of the words because it is the most clearly stated theological truths that are what are important for the faith and reveal the fundamental principles. So this interchange between these two scholars is one of the most influential arguments of the time. Most of the earlier critics were outsiders or more popular for other works that they had done. This, however, put biblical criticism and especially the concept of biblical infallibility in the center of the room. Recent scholars have even claimed that this changed the shape of biblical scholarship for the next century. Normally I would leave us here, but I want to pick up the story of Leclerc briefly because this actually did have a big impact on his life. The debate with Simon gained him a notorious international reputation, and the English translation of his Sentiments was published in 1690. At this point, Leclerc became persona non grata in reformed circles. He had desired to get a post in England because his salary at the Remonstrant Seminary was not enough to support his family, but many su suspected Leclerc of heterodoxy, in other words, of not being with the orthodox views of the church. 
So holding non-Orthodox beliefs or things that contradict the traditional church doctrines was a problem. As a result, Leclerc changed his position and published several works in which he reversed his opinion and affirmed the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch as early as 1690, which is only four years after he published this. He asserted that he had never approved of the opinions expressed in the sentiments, but only put them forward to create discussion. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Even when supporters like John Locke tried to get him a position, since the English ecclesiastical establishment never fully believed Leclerc's conversion papers, he was never able to get a permanent post in England, and that is why he stayed in Amsterdam for the rest of his life. So that is where I will leave us with Leclerc. In attempting to maintain the fundamental principles of faith through the biblical text alone, he undermined the concept of inspiration and the historical reliability of the text. So, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast and join me in two weeks for an episode on Jean Ausstruck. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you would like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about the Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening.